This is KOOP HD1 HD3 Hornsby. The following was home crafted and recorded on October 6th. Austin Chronicle Show. My name is Kim Jones, and I am the editor of the Austin Chronicle, Austin's independent source of news and culture reporting since 1981. 16 months ago, a term entered the lexicon that previously pretty much only cops and justice advocates were using with much regularity, and that term was less lethal munitions. The reason everybody here in Austin started talking about less lethal munitions is because it's what Austin police used on crowds of protesters over the weekend of May 30th and 31st, 2020. A lot of people were seriously injured by that use of force, and nearly a dozen of them are now suing the city of Austin as a result. Reporter Brant Bingaman has been tracking this story for the Chronicle for over a year, and I've asked him to the show today to let us know what's happening with the case. Brant, thank you for joining me. Thanks, Kim. My pleasure. Brant, in your latest piece, you described the experience of Tyree Talley, a 27-year-old Black and deaf Austinite who was hit multiple times by what is commonly referred to as a beanbag round. Can you tell our readers about that? On Saturday, May 30th, 2020, Mr. Talley went down to the protests, mostly out of curiosity, but also because, you know, he's an idealistic person like many of the protesters are. And he was standing outside APD headquarters around 9.15 p.m. He felt something hit his ear, just kind of graze it. And less than a second later, a shot hit him in the groin. He fell down on the ground, wrapped himself in the fetal position, and was shot eight more times. I spoke to him about three weeks ago, and he showed me the two-inch wide scars from these less lethal munitions. They hit him in the ankles, in the calves, in the back, in his arms. And if you read that piece, you saw that he described being in great pain from that incredible pain. He was helped to his car by some bystanders, some other protesters, and was driven to the hospital. And thereafter, mostly for weeks afterwards, was trying to recover. So, Brant, in the course of your reporting, you've spoken to quite a few people who were injured at the Chronicle. We've referred to them as the 8th Street Survivors. This is referring to the location outside of the APD headquarters where a lot of the protesters gathered. Can you sort of talk a little bit more about less lethal munitions? And also, am I right in thinking that then APD Chief Brian Manley announced that they were no longer going to be using those? Am I remembering that correctly? That's right, Kim. That's right. First of all, the munitions, primarily, there are these beanbag rounds. There's more than one type of these munitions. Some of them, there's also a munition that's fired from something that resembles a grenade launcher, apparently. It's a large foam block. But the main thing that people have talked about being shot with are the beanbag rounds. And those are a mesh bag filled with lead shot the same type of lead shot in a shotgun shell. 
and these munitions are fired from modified shotguns. And so what happens is they expand as they fly and they're supposed to hit a person over a broad area. They're not supposed to be deadly, but they are. About 3% of all the people who are hit by these munitions are killed by them, according to a study from 2017. Another 15% suffer life-altering injuries. So that's what the police are shooting people with. In our case, during those protests, allegedly the police were using munitions that were 20 years old that had been sitting on the shelves for that time. And according to a report from KUT, it's possible that these munitions had hardened and settled into a more compacted mass during that time, meaning that when they hit somebody, they were far more dangerous than they were supposed to be, than they were designed to be. So people were really seriously hurt by these things, really hurt by them. According to my notes, there are reports of at least 17 people who have been very badly hurt. Many of them are shot in the head or the face, and many of them are suing the city. So that's what the lethal munitions are. When Chief Manley was still in charge of APD, obviously there was a huge outcry in the aftermath of the protests, and he announced that APD would no longer be using, was it specifically the beanbag rounds or... My memory is that he said that he would no longer use any of these munitions for crowd control purposes. However, in the immediate aftermath of those shootings, he said that they were all within policy, meaning that they were all under the rules that the police used to determine how to approach such situations. Put another way, he said that the shootings were more or less appropriate in the immediate aftermath. But once it became apparent just how many people had been hurt how severe the injuries were and how angry people in the city were about it, then he backtracked and said that they wouldn't use them for that reason anymore, for that purpose. So yeah, let's talk about what's happened in the 16 months since this all went down. Of course, we have a new APD chief now. Chief Joseph Chacon was confirmed by council last week. But I'm wondering... Has there been an an internal investigation at APD about police conduct that weekend? Yeah, there was, but we don't know very much about it. In December of 2020, APD released a report that they had disciplined 11 officers and that seven officers were still on administrative leave while the district attorney looked into the use of force that those officers had employed. But that was about as much as we learned. We didn't learn which officers had been disciplined. We already knew which ones were on administrative leave, but we didn't learn which ones had been disciplined or anything else about who they had hurt, how they had hurt them, really anything. So to this day, as far as I know, there's been no further information. So eventually, I assume that some of this information is going to come out and maybe uh, the new chief. Joe Chacon will take responsibility and release that information. In the meantime, the district attorney is looking into the actions of 11 of these officers. And there's a grand jury currently impaneled that is considering charges against these officers. Probably be something like assault with a deadly weapon, I guess, is one. Attempted murder, maybe? I mean, who knows? But the grand jury is looking at those those uses of force. Okay. And then concurrent with that, there are also civil cases, correct? 
Some of the injured are now suing the city. And there's a great many of those. And that's how we've learned about these cases more than in any other fashion. You know, because, of course, the district attorney isn't talking about these cases in any detail. The only people who are are the attorneys for the people who were hurt. It's been so helpful to hear from the victims themselves and from the attorneys who are representing them. And there's a long list of these people who are being represented mostly by Jeff Edwards' law firm and Rebecca Weber's law firm, <laughs> and Tyree Talley, Christine Workashevsky, Sam Kirsch, Maya Yala, Justin Howell, Anthony Edwards, Bomani Barton, Jamaica Volter-Jones, Meredith Williams, Meredith Drake, Nikki Underwood, Ariana Chavez, Serenica Martin, Stephen Aron, Joe Herrera, Tracy Cates. Those are some of them. And I know you've spoken to some of these victims who have undergone multiple surgeries and have lasting physical and also mental effects from their injuries. I don't know if you could sort of sum up their experience, how they're processing this. Do you have anything you could share? Yeah, I can talk about it, of course. The principal takeaway is that they're human beings and they've been seriously hurt. I've only spoken to four of these people. You know, I've collected details on many more, but I've only spoken to four. The four people who I spoke with face-to-face, each one of them seemed to me a kind person, a thoughtful person, and an idealistic person. So, you know, it's a strange thing because it seemed to me like (laughs) they were kind of better folks than what you think you're going to encounter in everyday life, you know? To me, they were like good people. They felt like good people to me and normal people. Normal in the sense that we all are capable of being hurt and then trying to get through it with dignity. And I felt a sense of shared humanity with them when I spoke with them. I just liked them, you know, and they're clearly intelligent people. They're clearly thoughtful people. And they have really suffered. They were really hurt. And the injuries they suffered are going to be with them for the rest of their lives, if not physically, emotionally. And this was another thing that was really impressed upon me as I spoke with them, is that they are getting through their physical rehabilitation to a greater or lesser degree. But each of them expressed this sense that they're now nervous in crowds. They don't feel comfortable around the police at all. When they see a police officer, they start to have feelings of panic. They all said that they probably won't be attending any protests anymore. They can't imagine wanting to go to a protest anymore, except maybe Sam Kirsch. And at least three of the ones who I spoke with and several others of the ones who I just gathered information on were not seasoned activists or anything of the kind. These were just ordinary people who wanted to go out and express their feelings that Black Lives Matter. So they were really taken aback by being shot by the police. So I don't know. I felt a sense of deep humanity from them. Well, Brant, thank you for your time. Thanks for staying on top of this story. I think the the farther we get from it, I think the more it recedes for a lot of people from, you know, the front of their brain. And I think it's important to keep talking about it. So, yeah, thanks, Brant. Thanks, Kim.
We are going to take a quick break. Don't go anywhere. the Austin Chronicle show on co-op community radio. In the second half of the program, we are turning our attention to Austin's major league soccer club, Austin FC, which is nearing the end of its inaugural season. The team's on a brief hiatus, but also on a bit of an upswing. So I thought it was a good opportunity to ask the Chronicle soccer guru, Eric Goodman, who writes a weekly column about Austin FC, the Verde Report, have him come on and talk to us about it. So thank you for joining me, Eric. Absolutely. Thank you, Kim. It's been pretty whirlwind of a year for Austin FC, and this has been a fun ride with lots of emotions all over the map. Yeah, absolutely. Well, why don't we talk first about the team itself, its record? Like you alluded to a bit of a bumpy ride. Is this what you had anticipated would happen for first year expansion team? You know, it's really, especially in major league soccer, when you talk about soccer, it's a unique kind of sport. Especially, you know, I wasn't raised necessarily in a city with MLS. And so your attention is kind of drawn at first towards the Barcelonas, the Real Madrids, La Liga, the Premier League, you know, those kinds of clubs which have the best in the world. You know, MLS, obviously, it draws a lot from North America primarily. And and then, you know, kind of the structure is unique. And for all those reasons, we've seen a lot of variety in how new teams do. And there's been a lot of new teams in the last five years. I remember back in 2015, I actually went to like the very first match of Orlando City. I was living in Jacksonville, Florida at the time. And I thought like, wow, here's a brand new team. Who knows if I'll ever get the chance to go to another very first match. Of course, turns out I got that chance again, which was great. And I got to cover it. But you know, that was a a similar situation, like a new team that they had kind of an established star. His name is Kaka. He was a former world player of the year. Austin FC decided to kind of start more from scratch where, you know, none of their players were really household names, but certainly tough to predict how they would do. They kind of sit as we talk, they still are very bottom of the Western Conference. And that was always in play as you kind of look deeper into the decision-making that was going into this first year and knowing that the fan base is going to be there. You know, I think the club knew that from the very beginning because, you know, numbers for season tickets were high, interest and buzz was high. So I think they understood that, you know, we don't necessarily need to win our first five games to get people's attention. We're going to have interest no matter what. Part of the blueprint, I think, was to have it be more gradual build. I don't think they were expecting some of the things that happened that have led to being, you know, bottom of the table, which is obviously where no team wants to be. But, you know, it was one of those things that, that certainly seemed like the possibility was there from the beginning. What has led to Austin FC, which has had some important wins, but has a mostly losing season? What are some of the things that, you know, sort of looking at it in the rearview mirror, what were the issues? Well, the first thing, yeah, and like there are issues and there are choices, like I mentioned. The first choice that was made kind of 
set this up as more, maybe more possible than in the past with other first-year teams is the coach that they hired, Josh Wolf. He had been an assistant for several years. This was his first head coaching opportunity still. you know, As far as coaches go, he's, he's on the younger side, certainly on the lower side of experience. And other teams in the past, Atlanta United, their very first manager's name was Tata Martino, who had recently come from coaching FC Barcelona and, and actually now is the coach of the Mexican national team. So they brought in someone with a proven track record with as much experience as you could ask for. And Austin FC decided, I'm sure that you know the kind of contract that someone like Tata Martino is going to demand is a lot greater than maybe what Anthony Precourt and the ownership group had in mind for their very first coach. But yeah, you bring in Josh Wolf, who someone who I think earned that opportunity to be at the helm of a team. But you know, especially when that first opportunity comes with the team and a roster of players that, first of all, doesn't exist, and then once you bring that team together, well, that's a brand new team that's never played together. The decision making and all the tactics kind of become that much more important because you have players that have just never even played together. That was the main thing, bringing in a first-year head coach. And then something from the sporting director, whose name is Claudio Reyna, former U.S. national team captain. He's actually the father of one of the U.S.'s brightest young stars right now named Gio Reyna. Claudio Reyna, the sporting director, had experience in this exact situation because he was the first sporting director for New York City FC, which also, I think the same year, 2015, they were a brand new team. And then you heard kind of what his plan was, invest a portion of the budget early on, but still saving a good chunk of resources for whether it was mid-season or year two. You know, that was kind of the plan. So, you know, we're going to start with our foot in the water, but not completely all in, try to see where help is needed and then add to it. And, you know, when you do that, you do run the risk of, you know, that first chunk of the season going wrong. And that's kind of what happened. And they've had to play catch up throughout to build that back. So let's look at the team itself, which incidentally, speaking of fathers and sons, Coach Wolf, he has a son who is a soccer player and who is, I believe, newly signed to Austin FC, correct? Yep. Owen Wolf, he's 16 years old, might have actually recently just turned 17. Can't quite remember. He's a midfielder. And uh, even though he signed with the team as a professional player, he's probably still a year or two away from being any kind of uh, contributor, but he was presented as the first Austin FC homegrown player. You know, that kind of rubbed a lot of people the wrong way because I think Owen Wolf was born in Atlanta. You know, Josh Wolf was coaching in Ohio. The entire family's new to Austin. So you're introducing a homegrown player who really has only been here maybe since 2020, 2019. And I understand that, but. The reason you do that is kind of one of these complicated MLS things. A homegrown player is kind of classified differently. But yeah, everybody's played with the coach's kid. I get the sense that Josh Wolf is definitely able to separate coach mode from dad mode. So I wouldn't worry about any kind of preferential unearned treatment. But for a team that's still trying to develop its academy, which is a huge part of Major League Soccer, when you can have your youth academy that eventually is pumping out talent that the team can use. Austin FC is still building that up. Owen Wolf kind of gives them that first person they can point to as saying, hey, here's someone who came of age while playing in our system and maybe one day is, is a contributor to Austin FC. Well, a legitimately homegrown player is a Round Rock native that I know you were super excited about got added 
Yeah, Mackenzie Gaines, who can fill that striker position that for the longest time was the biggest, most glaring weakness for Austin FC. And a lot of it had to do with injury. The guy that they brought in to kind of fill that role, Danny Houston, went out with a hip injury. Doesn't seem like he's going to play again this year. So there was a void there. They filled it in a couple ways. Kinsey Gaines was more of a kind of a wild card shot than anyone that they really had in their long-term plans. Like you said, a Round Rock native came up through Lone Star Soccer Club, just like Kakuta Mane, who has been on the team from the very beginning. But Mackenzie Gaines scores a goal in, in one of the most recent matches against the LA Galaxy, which was kind of a, a pretty significant moment kind of for everyone who's been following soccer in Austin to see one of your own score a goal for this brand new club. And you know, I think there's a chance that it's the first of many. I mean, this is a player with elite speed. His father was a track star at the University of Kansas. You can totally see the sprint speed in the way that he plays. It was kind of his calling card when he went over to Germany to, to try his luck there, as some other Americans have done. Didn't quite work out for him as well as it has for others. Bounced around a few teams, but kept getting opportunities because of that speed and because of his ability to change games, especially as a substitute. I mean, I can't tell you how important it is when you've played an entire hour of soccer and the opposing team's defenders are tired and maybe some are cramping up, and then you bring on the fastest player on that field, it can make a big difference. And that's what happened against the Galaxy. And he'll have opportunities to do that quite a bit more through the rest of this season and, and hopefully seasons to come, depending on you know how long that fit stays that way. Well, he was a late addition to the squad. Who else do you think had an impactful first season? Which, of course, I should reiterate, it's not over yet, but we're just sort of taking the opportunity of this little lag. Who else do you have your eye on? Sure. You know, like we talked about how Austin FC saved a bunch of resources kind of to add in the middle of the season. As the results started going poorly, it became even more important that they got those right and that they spent those resources in a way that was going to help the team. And by all accounts and, and by the matches that they've played since these players have got here, it looks like they've done that. First and foremost, Sebastian Driussi, an Argentinian versatile attacker. You can't even really kind of describe him in one position. He can kind of play, whether it's the striker position, he can play out on either wing, even in midfield where Austin FC seems to like him best. A player that you know was making big money in Russia, one of the biggest clubs in the Russian Premier League. They were able to convince him to be open to a move to the United States, to Austin FC. And I think even more than some of the very first players that the club spent you know, a large chunk of their budget on, I think Sebastian Drews is going to be one of the impact players to come and, and possibly this team's star, hopefully for several years. And along with him is Musa Jite. This is probably the most interesting story of assembling this roster on the club because Musa Jite was playing in the second division of soccer in France from a team in the town of Grenoble called Grenoble. I'm sure I'm not pronouncing that as the locals would, but I mean, when you talk about where players come from to MLS, you're not looking at second division in France very often at all. So just first of all, to identify that player, I think is great work by Claudio Reyna and the Austin FC scouting staff as someone who could come in and kind of be the centerpiece striker. He's young. He's only 21 years old. He's produced goals and he's produced assists since finally getting to the US after a long, drawn out saga of, does he have his passport yet? 
have all the COVID protocols been taken care of. Once they got him here, he's made an instant impact. And now both he, Musa Jite, and Sebastian Driussi have absolutely changed kind of the story of this team from an offensive standpoint. Well, Eric, we've just got a couple of minutes left, but I want to ask you sort of big picture. We're doing this on Zoom. I see the Texas flag in your background. And you brought up an interesting question in your Verde Report column. Is this town big enough to support fandom of UT football now that it's back and Austin FC? And just, I guess, in general, what do you think about the fandom? I think the fandom has been excellent and pretty much everybody within the league, not even affiliated with the club, coaches and players from other clubs have all had rave reviews for the environment and the fans. And and that's clear. What maybe isn't as clear is how long that can be expected to last, especially if the club goes, you know, another two or three or four seasons of soccer of, of this kind of quality, which would be bottom of the league, which again, I think, you know, you, we shouldn't expect that. We should expect the team to improve as it gets more experience under its belt. But the fan support's been incredible and it's been incredible independent of anything UT's doing right down I-35 on campus. There's, I think, been three matches that have gone right up against UT games to the point where if there was a big effect, you would notice it. And so far when I've been at Q2 while UT's been playing, it's been just as loud. It's been just as good of an environment, just as supportive to the team on the field. And I think that's just proof that the days of everyone in Austin being affiliated with UT and being a fan of UT are kind of behind us. So many people are here from all over the country and all over the world when the team has Austin in the name rather than the University of Texas, more people can identify with that if they live here. And so the numbers speak for themselves. Every season ticket is sold. And that's true three times over in terms of the wait list just to get on the season ticket list. Where the results have not been where the club would want it to be, I think the fan support and the interest is everything they could have hoped for. Well, somewhat improbably, I think Austin has become a soccer town. I think your soccer coverage in the Chronicle has been outstanding. So, Eric, thank you so much for joining us. Thank you, Kim. Enjoy the last rest of the season. And as one friend of mine recently pointed out, yes, Austin FC is at the very bottom of the picture of the standings, but Austin FC is on the picture of the standings. And I think that's important to remember as we enjoy these last few games. Thanks, Eric. If you're interested in hearing more of Eric's thoughts about Austin FC, you can get the Verde Report delivered straight to your inbox. Info at austinchronicle.com forward slash newsletters. And that is the show. Thanks again to my guests, Brent Bingaman and Eric Goodman. Thanks to our engineers, Bob Daly and Andrew Solon, and to Kevin Curtin and Jonas Wilson for writing our theme music. Singing us out of the episode today is La Murga de Austin, the supporters section band that keeps things lively at Austin FC matches. Dolly Austin, y'all. We'll see you next week. <laughs>